Hello, lovers. Welcome back to the show, which is also called Lovers. This is season four of Raw Material, and I'm your host, Chelsea Beck. I'll be your primary lover for the next 20 minutes. In this season, we are considering the effects of sex on art and art on sex. How some artists observe their own passions and proclivities in one medium, like sex, and then apply what they've learned from those observations to another medium, art. These can be subtle epiphanies and connections. They unfold over time, and sometimes they're noticeable only in hindsight. Have you ever been in a relationship that inspired you to write poetry, compose music, make art, or bake elegant desserts? Suppose you need an important cake for an important occasion. Here it is, a walnut cake covered with sweet words of love. Or have you ever had a sexual encounter with a lover that was so hot, so connected, that it touched you on a deeper level? That, like seeing great art, changed the way you experienced the world. Like when the artists Dorothy Iannone and Dieter Rote met on a chance trip to Iceland in 1967, Dorothy found their sexual connection to be so pivotal to her art practice and her life in general that she describes the trip as the journey which seems to have made all other journeys possible. In today's episode, we'll be talking about a mix of people I know, Some of them are personal friends, and some I only feel like I know personally. The common thread for all these folks? They're all creative people for whom romantic relationships brought a little extra sparkle into the studio. But first, I want to mention the M word, since you probably already thought that's where I was going with this. Muse. Some people have trouble with the word moist, or they don't like the word panties. For me, that word is muse. Muses have historically been young women whose beguiling effects on an artistic gentleman, usually at least a few years their senior, unleashes and inspires the man's creative genius. Her spirit, her je ne sais quoi, fuels some of his greatest works. Not as a collaborator or partner, though. Not as someone who might have consciously cultivated what it is that these so-called geniuses saw in them. The title of Muse is rarely a lifetime appointment. They either crack under the pressure of having to maintain that je ne sais quoi, or they are cast aside because they've lost it, whatever it was in the first place. Maybe they just got old. Pablo Picasso had his share of muses. To me, it's no coincidence that Pablo met Dora Mar, his second muse, shortly after his first muse, Marie Teresa Walter, 28 years his junior, was two months postpartum with their daughter. It's hard to maintain that certain je ne sais quoi when you're taking care of a newborn. 
How perfectly uninspiring of her. The Muse relationship is not born from creative exchange or equitable power dynamics, so I shy away from using the M-word even when others might use it, because I think it minimizes and flattens out the genius of the Muse herself. Yes, I said genius instead of genius. It's a term invented by the ever-brilliant Brian Eno. He defines it this way. Senius stands for the intelligence and the intuition of a whole cultural scene. It's the communal form of the concept of genius. So, inspired by Brian, instead of a genius getting to pick a muse, I'm opting for an alternative concept. The idea that lovers can naturally possess senius. To me... A relationship among lovers can be more equitable. There is choice, agency, and autonomy for all parties involved. The word lover has not been marinating in patriarchal juices for hundreds of years like Muse has. Lick it up, baby. Lick it up. I'm interested in the potential for lovers to draw something out of or expose something within one another. I have friends who call each other their art wife. Co-host, co-creator of uh, Bitch art Face. Wife. Your art wife. Life when, partner. <laughs> when did you guys become art wives? Um, did Nicole tell you about how we met? Maybe she no, didn't. No, she you didn't. Anything. We met at an awesome party in Mexico City. It's a clothing optional party. I really appreciate this term, art wife, because it encompasses the companionship, duty, intimacy, and focus of a relationship in which art is at the core for both of them. But they don't have sex with one another. I don't think. Maybe they have. Things get a little more complicated when sex is involved. I have another set of friends who used to be in a three-way relationship. One is a photographer, one is a painter, and one does mostly video and performance art. They lived together for years. From the outside, it seemed like they were always collaborating, critiquing, and inspiring each other's practices. Three seems like such a great way of always having a definitive answer or direction. Two against one, instead of the maddening inertia of one-on-one. I have no idea what their sex lives were like, and they're broken up now. And as far as I know, none of them are pursuing other love triangles. I guess the grass is always greener. My friends John and Leah are more forthcoming with their sex life. Well, Leah is. John is still getting used to being on display. Leah's memoir called Vanishing Twins, A Marriage, just came out. Here's Leah reading from her book. One in particular caught my attention, the myth of the Egyptian gods Osiris and Isis. They were twins, it said, who began making love in their mother's womb and married each other as soon as they were born. The idea of lovemaking in the womb got me hot, a place where no one could tell you who or what or how you were supposed to fuck. Chelsea here again. Leah's book is about how she upends her traditional marriage to John. She wants to make art. She wants to fuck women. She searches for answers. How can her desires be accommodated within the close confines of her relationship? Through the lens of twinning, she examines this period of time in which she and John open up their marriage. 
In order to deal with the confusion and repressed anger John feels as a result of Leah's sexual explorations in the open relationship, John is forced to expand his emotional toolbox through psychoanalysis. How else? Going into psychoanalysis is is way more important than grad school, than any other kind of experience before that, for me in terms of being an artist. In doing so, he constructs a foundation for his photography practice and gains some healthy perspective on the state of his relationship with Leah. Something like desire, for example, is always in relation to someone or an object outside of you. It's, it's never kind of self-contained. And growing up with those ideas of masculinity that I had, I just thought everything was self-contained. It was all within me. There was no, no sense of relationality. And so in my work, I really hope that does come through. It's a painful process. But at the other end, John and Leah are both more fulfilled creatively and sexually. The most famous artist couple with what some people today might now call an open marriage was Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. Diego also shares the classic genius philanderer combo platter that Pablo was known for as well. Leah visits Las Casas Jamelas in her book. They're called the Twin Houses, two adjacent buildings joined by a bridge in which Frida and Diego lived and worked. Many people believe that Frida lived in the blue house and Diego in the red, but that's not really how it worked. The together but separate mythos is appealing because it paints a picture of Frida as a strong, independent woman, and she totally was in many respects. But the more I read about and consider Diego and Frida's relationship, it sounds a lot like what I'd call codependency. The on-again, off-again marriage, their spiteful affairs comprise a tortured, even weaponized relationship to sex, even if they were very much in love. Here at Lovers, we dig artistic and sexual sustainability and growth. It's no wonder that this is one of the most famous relationships in art history, precisely because it's so fucked up. It feeds into the Hollywood version of who artists are supposed to be. Unstable, emotional wrecks. Here's a love letter from Frida to Diego, read by my friend Laura. Diego, nothing compares to your hands. Nothing like the green gold of your eyes. My body is filled with you for days and days. You're the mirror of the night. The violent flash of lightning the dampness of the earth. The hollow of your armpits is my shelter. My fingers touch your blood. All my joy is to feel life spring from your flower fountain that mine keeps to fill all the paths of my nerves, which are yours. Does this sound appealing to you? Maybe I'm just jaded at this point. Maybe the informality of email and the immediacy of the sext or the booty call have made old-fashioned love letters hard for me to interpret. But there have been times I've felt intense passion like this before, and it's terrified me to be so dependent on someone else's attention, and it's impossible to get anything done. Of course I understand that this agonizing, intense love for Diego is one of the elements that catalyzes Frida's work. 
This is evidenced in her 1949 portrait, Diego and I. In it, Frida looks undone. Messy hair, tears running down her cheeks. A portrait of Diego sits atop her brows. Her raw gaze meets ours. She is showing her pain to us, while little Diego's eyes are focused on the horizon. His thoughts are elsewhere. The work seems to confess her relationship. To me, it seems like an apology. To herself? As anyone can see from her paintings, she was not afraid to confront her demons, many of them originating from her illnesses and injuries. But from what I can see, Diego really exacerbated them. I read that he compared making love to urinating. Ew, not okay. It makes me wonder how Frida's masochistic relationship tendencies influenced her artistic output. In 1949, Frida's friend, the psychologist Olga Campos, conducted some psychological tests. She concluded that Frida had a hard time maintaining a cohesive sense of self, vacillating between grandiosity and inferiority. A posthumous assessment of the test results by present-day psychologist James Bridger Harris goes on to surmise that Frida's precarious sense of self-worth is what may have kept her in the toxic cycle of being chosen by Diego, then being devastated when another woman inevitably caught his eye. There's a colored pencil sketch by Frida from 1944 called Self-Portrait as genitals, which I absolutely love. Picture a pink stingray. That's the vulva. At the end without the tail, sitting on the top of the curve near the wings, there's an assertive pink triangle, part nose and part knife. That's the clit which lays between two angry-looking eyes and Frida's famous brow, so often described as the wings of a bird. But here, her arches look more like two steep mountainsides. The pubic hair is drawn emanating from the pink, creating an aura around the form that's full of frenetic energy. To me, it smacks of sexual frustration, as if pain and love were so closely linked for her Of course her vulva looks pissed off. Frida wrote, I have never held back from sexual activities, only because of sickness. So much has been made about her affairs with Josephine Baker and Leon Trotsky, among many others. But given her cycle of pain, surgery, convalescence, medication, depression, plus all the hormonal changes due to three pregnancies and miscarriages... It's quite amazing that she had any energy at all left for sex. Or art, for that matter. That's pretty impressive. The thing about relationships is that they take a lot of work. And the work they take lasts exactly as long as the relationship itself. You don't get one without the other. For Diego and Frida... And for anyone who's ever been in an explosive, toxic relationship, these take an even greater amount of energy to manage and recover from. Sure, they might produce the ugliest O-faces and momentary bursts of passionate inspiration, but personally, 
I'm curious what Frida would have painted if she had loved someone who didn't indulge her insecurities. All right, so I recently dug through my email to see if I could find any deep, poetic love notes from when I first began my relationship with my husband. We met in an artist residency in Maine in 2008. We had nine weeks of canoodling in the woods, interrupted only by lake swims and studio time. It was a complete Shangri-La. Our tryst was not supposed to last any longer than the residency, and the finite amount of time we had together made every day feel precious. Time was our aphrodisiac, one of them. That he was one of the few residents who didn't have a roommate was another. We said goodbye at the Bangor airport, and really, we both thought that was it. But then, shortly afterwards, we began writing love letters, well, love emails. The thing is, they were written from a clandestine email account, which I can't access anymore. I do have a very old voicemail, however. It's from when we had just moved in together and our real life with each other was starting to happen. But it's emphatically not a love message. I'm thinking 515-ish. Sex? Yeah, it's not the poetry I was looking for. But the meter wasn't running on our relationship anymore. And since we knew there was a strong possibility that it could extend into a future we couldn't measure, our time was being managed with less care. What was once an activity we would rush to do, squeeze in at every opportunity, had to now be scheduled. Our scant time in Maine had served as a cozy container for our relationship, molding it into a heightened experience. But now we lived together. It was as if the contents of our container had been flipped over and spread into a thin puddle. Perhaps this is why we make a big deal about anniversaries. It's a moment to assess time's effect on love, lest we forget. I'm hardly a stranger. Well, you are late. I know. You shouldn't have waited 10 years for this. Happy anniversary. The diamond anniversary band. No other artist has expressed the function of time as a key romantic element quite as sensually and ephemerally as Felix Gonzalez Torres. Felix's most famous artworks are his candy installations. If you've been to a major museum in the last 20 years, you've probably encountered one. Blanketed on the floor or piled up high in a corner, hundreds of sucking candies wrapped in foil begin at a particular weight, most famously as Felix and his boyfriend Ross Laycock's combined weight. Viewers can consume a candy from the pile, diminishing its weight and size, till eventually it disappears. The candy is a stand-in for the body, a divine vessel, aids, and medicine. The art historian Robert Storr writes about taking a candy into your mouth, the sucking action, the pleasure of swirling it around with your tongue. It conjures sex, your own and Felix's, right there in the gallery. It's pretty subversive. I'm sure Felix delighted at the thought of a homophobic gallery-goer sucking his candy. Felix's relationship 
with his partner Ross was cut short when Ross died from AIDS-related complications in 1991. Five years later, Felix would die from the same disease. The time they did have together was central to the development of Felix's work. He has said that his art was made for an audience of one. That person is Ross. Here's a love letter he wrote to Ross in 1988, the year Ross was diagnosed with AIDS, read by my friend Pedro. Lovers, don't be afraid of the clocks. They are our time. Time has been so generous to us. We imprinted time with the sweet taste of victory. We conquer fate by meeting it at a certain time in a certain space. We are a product of the time. Therefore, we give back credit where it is due. Time. We are synchronized, now and forever. I love you. For both art and sex, as seen through the lens of relationships, the daily grind, showing up, being present, is what sustains both practices. It's not the grand, dramatic gestures that get praised, or in this day and age, the ones that are posted to social media, but rather the barely perceptible touches and whispers felt over time. That's how Felix worked. Experiencing his art can be an invitation to consider time as it functions as both a memory and a hope. Here's Felix. Again, a lot of very interesting things happen in terms of what's expected from an artwork. People go and say, where is the work? And they tell them, oh, it's in the window. So they go directly to the window and they open the curtain and they look for it, hoping to see outside something. I don't know, but for me, this is something. The window Felix is referring to is from his work called Loverboy from 1988, a set of diaphanous light blue curtains, a blue inspired by Ross's hospital gowns, is hung on whatever windows are present in the gallery space. It's site-specific, and it's incredibly evocative and gentle. It reminds me of lying in bed and watching the curtains. Maybe a window is open and I'm feeling the breeze over my naked skin as my lover and I hold each other close. What a strange and beautiful thing to recall a moment like that in a gallery. The cultural critic Bell Hooks wrote about Felix, the object is merely a mirror, giving a glimpse that is also a shadow of what was once real, present, concrete. The glimpse of a shadow in Felix's work is what makes me think about sex. Not in a way that illustrates it, but in a way that exposes the imprint sex has made onto my consciousness, that I imagine it does for most of us. Romantic relationships impact the way we think and the way we see. Allowing ourselves to be vulnerable with a lover, the care or rejection that we are met with, It's a testing ground in some ways for how the world at large may receive us 
during other moments of vulnerability, like making art. On the next episode of Lovers, for most of Western art history, sex and art have publicly remained pretty separate. Personally, I still think we have a long way to go. But as the art critic Douglas Crimp has written about, it was the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and the activism by artists whose communities were being ravaged by the disease who brought the two forces closer than they had ever been before. We'll dig into this time period and take a look at some of the artists and artworks that paved the way. Thanks for spending your time with me. I'm Chelsea Beck, and this is season four of Raw Material, Lovers. Most of the music you've heard throughout the episode is by Annie Rossi. Subscribe to Raw Material wherever you find podcasts. That way you won't miss a single episode. And follow us on Instagram at Raw Material Podcast for episode updates and behind-the-scenes shots of what we're up to. See you next time.